Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series in the book of Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb with a message entitled Jesus Against Balaam. So turn to Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 to 17 as we begin. The matter of our sexuality, the matter of everything from our sexual choices to our so-called gender identity to a response to the sexual ethics of others, all of these matters have come to dominate our public discourse from politics to education to everyday conversations to the movies we watch to some of the greatest temptations we face. Sex is everywhere. We're literally swimming in a sea of it, from the internet to magazines that we pick up to the matter of sexual thinking and sexual activity, it's constantly thrust into our path. Even if we decide to avoid it, it would seem that it will not avoid us. Christian people can't pretend we don't live in our society. And it might be one thing to say that the Church of Jesus Christ is providing an alternative to the sexual brokenness that is around us, but in fact, we're often overwhelmed at how often the brokenness is found its way into our churches and into our lives. Fact is, we're not immune. But Jesus has something to say to us as we live in this world. We've been studying the book of Revelation, and we've been reading Jesus' message to the seven churches. To the first church in Ephesus, he commanded them to recapture their first love. Then to the second, the church in Smyrna, he offers no criticism but only encouragement to continue to be strong in the day of persecution. We now come to Jesus' message to the third church, the church in the city of Pergamum. I'm reading Revelation 2, 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality." So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, as we have noted, all these messages to the churches follow a familiar formula. First, Jesus identifies himself in a way that is pertinent to each church. Then he commends what they have done well. And then third, he calls them to repent of any sin. Finally, he offers both counsel on what to do and a promise that they can claim. So let's follow this message to Pergamum. But before we do, let's learn something from the ancient city of Pergamum. Pergamum was not a major commercial and economic center, as were Ephesus and Smyrna. One of the key reasons for that is that, unlike these other two cities, Pergamum did not have a seaport, but was located inland. It was also the most northern of the seven churches of Revelation. But the city was very important. The Romans had made Pergamum the Roman capital of the province of Asia, and as such, it contained the seat of government of that area. 
but also because of the way in which the Roman government functioned, Pergamum was also the center of the imperial cult. That is, it held the most prominent temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. And this, as is very easy to imagine, presented the Christian church there with many difficulties because a refusal to worship the emperor was considered an act of treason. And so Christians in this city were seen as disloyal to Rome. See, the reason why Jesus refers to this city as the place where Satan has his throne is no doubt a reference to that reality. You know, because Pergamum was the seat of government, it was the home of one of the largest libraries in the ancient world, containing somewhere around 200,000 volumes. Indeed, if you think about it, the word parchment actually is derived from the word Pergamum. And so the city was the center of learning as well as government. But Pergamum also had more temples than just to the emperor. The city had an acropolis about a thousand feet high on which were numerous temples and had become the center of the serpent god of healing, a god named Asclepius. And from this temple came the college of medical priests. And when Jesus addressed the church in that city, he wanted the church in Pergamum to concentrate on the fact that he has a sharp two-edged sword. You know, back in chapter 1, that sword was seen as coming from his mouth. Now, he didn't mean by that that he has more power than the Roman government. The sword is turned toward the church itself. As we will see, this is a church that had grown lax toward pagan practices, and Jesus wants this church to fear him far more than they fear the cultural climate in which they live. You know, understand it in context. Pergamum, because it was the capital center, was also the residence of the proconsul, a man who was given the power to put people to death. And indeed, the symbol of his office was the symbol of a sword. But Jesus has the ultimate sword. And in that, we're reminded of the words that came from the mouth of Jesus recorded in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so with an image of Jesus, the greater proconsul, more impressive than the sword of Rome, Jesus begins his message. His approval of them is indeed high praise. Indeed, in spite of the extreme pressure they faced, they had not denied Christ. One of their own, a man by the name of Antipas, had already been put to death for his faith in that city, and still they did not buckle. Indeed, when Jesus says, you did not deny my faith, the tense of that verb is punctiliar in that Jesus is referring to something very specific, something that would have happened recently. Now, reading the letter today, we don't know what that specific thing was, but they knew, and Jesus is saying that he knew as well. Indeed, the moment of crisis that overcame them from the Roman government was met with courage and with faith, even though it had resulted in a loss of life. And in this, we know that Antipas had joined the company of our Lord's martyrs, and the church had remained strong. And whenever Christians today hear of or encounter a church that has stood strong in the season of persecution, we, like Jesus, need to honor that church. As Western Christians today, I am deeply moved by both the plight and the courage of the persecuted church. We need to show honor to those whom Christ honors. 
you know, perhaps because of this, we might find verse 14 so surprising. But I have a few things against you. And then to our amazement, we find Jesus speaking most sternly to them about sexual immorality, about idolatry. And we might wonder how it can be possible that a church that seemed to be willing to stand faithful until death could in the same breath allow a moral compromise to find its way into their fellowship. You know, before we get into the details of what that compromise was, let me impress upon us the the need to be faithful in all things. Satan, our enemy, seeks our undoing. Like an ancient battle where one army attacks another, great military strategists do not attack their enemy at the point of their strength, but at the point of their weakness. And there was a great weakness among the Christians in Pergamum. You know, it's no different with us. And because the weakness among the Christians in Pergamum was related to both a sexually permissive culture and the idolatry in that city, we should do well to hear this warning. For we, like they, live in a society in which Christ demands regarding our sexuality must be heard. Christ does not consider it an excuse to say, but but Lord, I live in a soup of sexual immorality. I mean, what can I do? You know, what we can do is remain faithful to the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. For his demands regarding our own bodies are not to be taken as suggestions. Jesus considers the teaching of sexual purity to be highly significant. And in this, be warned. Whenever you hear supposed Christian teachers say that the the real issue of our day is care for the poor and the alien, matters of social justice, and that issues of our own sexual actions are but secondary, listen, they betray that they do not have the spirit of Jesus. Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum is that you might be faithful unto death, but if you allow sexual immorality to consume you, you might also in the same breath become an enemy of Christ. How sobering is that thought? This month we're broadcasting Volume 1 of Dr. Neufeld's newest series, The Triumph of the Lamb, a study in Revelation. This is the first of four volumes to be broadcast over the next several months, and each time we want to offer you the newest volume at a very special price. So for the month of March, Volume 1 of The Triumph of the Lamb, a study in Revelation on CD, is available for only $10. This 15-message volume covers Revelations chapter 1 to 5, including an in-depth study of the seven churches. Discover the book of Revelation like never before. And please remember, all our Bible teaching programs and resources are possible only because of your generosity. So consider an important ministry gift this month. Call us to order The Triumph of the Lamb or to offer a ministry donation at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. When Jesus rebuked the suffering church of Pergamum, he said that some of that church held to the teaching of Balaam. According to the book of Numbers, the nation of Moab hired an unscrupulous prophet named Balaam to place a curse on Israel. But God intervened, and in each place where Balaam would have cursed Israel, he ended up blessing them. And so consequently, Balaam, that prophet for hire, ended up forgoing a considerable payment that might have been his had he cursed Israel. 
Well, according to both Numbers 25 and then later in Numbers 31, Balaam then came up with his own plan. Why not get the most immoral of the Moabite women to offer themselves as an easy sexual tryst with the Israelite men? You know, in this way, Israel would do what God had forbidden of them. So Balaam reasoned that if God had forbidden him from cursing Israel, well, perhaps in this way, Israel would draw a curse onto themselves. In the end, after a great deal of sexual immorality, faithful Israelite men put to death the men who had been drawn into sexual sin, and they eventually killed Balaam himself. But since that time, Balaam becomes a symbol, if you will, of those who bring a curse on God's people by seducing them into sexual immorality and idolatry. Jesus, in his message to the church in Pergamum, tells the church that some among them hold to the teaching of Balaam, and then Jesus becomes very specific. The issue in Pergamum is that there are those who eat food sacrificed to idols and who practice sexual immorality. We might, if we think about it, put together the picture of what was happening in the church. The problem here is not the same as the problem in the church in Corinth, where some were wondering if they could buy meat in a public market that had previously been offered in sacrifice at a temple. You know, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul spoke at length on the freedom of conscience, as well as not offending a weak brother who might not know that idols were really nothing at all. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes a distinction between that practice and another one in which believers were actively participating in the temple. See, in that case, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warns the church in Corinth that you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons as well. And it must be that in Pergamum, some believers were actually found in temples and actually participating in temple feasts. Now, in truth, all such feasts were held in honor of the god or the goddess of that temple. According to the scripture, no Christian may participate in worship of any god other than the one true God, the triune God. But that's the key. Somehow in Pergamum, involvement in pagan feasts had become connected with sexual immorality. Temple feasts would also have included some form of sexual immorality, so it's no surprise at all that false worship leads to false morality. At some time, perhaps gradually, those who justified attending pagan feasts also began to minimize the sin of sex outside of marriage. Now, as we move further in verse 15, Jesus compounds his judgment of the already grave moral problems in Pergamum. Not only had the church not disciplined those who held to the sin of Balaam, but furthermore, the church also did nothing of those who held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've already encountered one reference to the Nicolaitans in Revelation. The church in Ephesus was commended because they would not tolerate the Nicolaitans, but this church is condemned because where the Ephesians were strong, the Pergamum Christians were weak. So as we've noticed then, in our day, we actually know nothing of the Nicolaitan heresy. Most likely, the Nicolaitan heresy had something to do with sexual immorality and idolatry. You know, from my vantage point, the error of Balaam was the appeal to sexual lust. But the Nicolaitan heresy probably provided the theological foundation which allowed for idolatry and sexual sin. Think of it in our context. A young Christian couple is dating and then fall into sexual sin. 
or a man is tempted by a female work colleague whom he finds exciting and attractive. In either case, this is the sin of Balaam. But the Nicolaitan heresy is the theology that justifies that sin. It finds a way of arguing that there are numerous legitimate expressions of sex outside of marriage, everything from adultery to fornication to homosexuality to pornography. It finds a way to ease the troubled conscience by teaching that God allows for such activity and undoubtedly a church that had the courage to stand up to the imperial cult of Rome and say no found no courage to confront the false teachers among them who taught them not to guard the holy use of their bodies. Now, we've got the same thing today. There are numerous so-called theologians and Bible teachers today who do the very same thing. You know, very recently, I was engaged in a conversation with an older man and his wife who, with tears, told me about a horrible situation involving their son. They'd sent him to a so-called Christian college. And while there, he struggled with same-sex attraction and had gone for counseling within that college. There, the Christian prof had told him to give in to his temptations and to identify himself as gay and to embrace the idea that God finds such behavior acceptable. And that precisely is Jesus' words to the church in Pergamum. You tolerate these false teachers. You don't root them out. You have stood against the culture as a whole, but you've let false teachers from within rob you of faithfulness to the one who holds the double-edged sword. And so we're forming a picture, a church who fought a great battle from without, only to have been destroyed from within. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. So then what does Jesus have to say to the church in Pergamum? Notice what he says. Repent then. The entire church is to repent of sins in which only a few have participated. But notice that the entire church is responsible for allowing false teaching to have been carried on within. The sin of Pergamum is the sin of tolerance toward those who teach acceptance of sexual immorality. Whenever any church will not take a stand on these issues, whenever they will not fight for purity within the church, the one with the sword comes to fight with them. Notice that Jesus does not demand that this church fight to end the sexual promiscuity outside the church. As Paul would say, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? I mean, think about it for a moment. How much energy is taken up by some to fight against the sexual promiscuity that now makes so much of our world? See, our great fight is to root out those in the church who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus commands his church to become intolerant of Nicolaitans. And if we do, he offers us a promise to the one who conquers. He will give hidden manna and a white stone. Now, that language is quite unfamiliar to us, but I strongly suspect that it was not unfamiliar to the Christians in Pergamum. According to Exodus 16, manna from the wilderness wanderings was preserved in a pot, and that pot was placed into the ark of God. 
It was a perpetual reminder that God had preserved his people in the wilderness. It was hidden because it was in the Holy of Holies and kept inside the ark. And so the meaning is really quite clear if you think about it. Hidden manna means that God will preserve you. The church of Pergamum were promised that if their faithfulness created an internal conflict with false teachers from within, that God would take care of them. Now, the white stone represents God's forgiveness or God's clearing his people from all their sins. In ancient Pergamum, when a man or a woman stood before a tribunal, if the jury found that man innocent, they would produce a white stone. And Jesus is telling this church, take a stand for purity, and I will produce for you a white stone in the presence of my Father. I will proclaim you innocent. We as a church need to hear that. Never tolerate sexual sin in the church. If the world around us celebrates sexual uncleanness, we as the church will celebrate sexual purity. We'll call for God's people to repent of all known sins and claim his forgiveness, a forgiveness that was bought us by the cross of Jesus our Lord. And in this way, we're called to be the radical people of God, celebrating Christ and not the world. We hold to a Jesus who proclaims to us the will of his Father. Jesus, and not a civil magistrate. Jesus, and not the seat of government, will be our guiding principle. Well, it seems pretty obvious here that Jesus is taking a stand. And it's about purity, and it's about purity first and foremost within the church. And in some ways, I think, you know, we can compromise on that today. And I think we're seeing that compromise. But isn't that why we think it's so important to do expositional Bible teaching at Back to the Bible Canada? Yeah, thank you, Ben. That is such an important point. I think because of the culture that we live in, it's very easy for us to make or to minimalize certain sins that our culture minimalizes. And it's not until we actually read Scripture that we actually encounter a God who demands of his people something very different than our culture demands of us. I mean, if we're ever going to learn to be countercultural and hold to the values of Christ, the only place we're going to get there is when we pay attention to Scripture line by line, verse by verse, read the text that's before us, carefully make application to our own lives, and then often we'll come to this surprising conclusion, my goodness, you know, we're beginning to think very much differently than we did before. So, yeah, it's a great advertisement for saying that's why we need to pay attention to the Bible and uh, do expositional uh, teaching in the Bible. A great challenge to get into the Word. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us February 2018 for a Celebration Caribbean cruise. One week of cruising the pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly, joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests and new friends from coast to coast in a time of reflection, refreshment, worship, and fellowship with God's people. These events are incredibly popular, so don't hesitate to reserve your spot now and sail the Caribbean with Back to the Bible Canada. For cruise and registration information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada supporters, no ministry funds are used to facilitate vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by those who participate.